and uh, who's holding us all together. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Elizabeth Petavicina Gibert, who's Professor of Caribbean Culture and Literature in the Department of Hispanic Studies and in Africana Studies at Vassar College, where she holds the, uh, the Randolph Distinguished uh, Professor Chair. Her work is very well known to scholars in all of the major language areas of the Caribbean, um, particularly her role in editing the groundbreaking anthologies of a new generation of Caribbean women writers, such as Green Cane, Green Cane and Juicy Flotsam, short stories by Caribbean women, Pleasure in the Word, erotic writings by Latin American women, and Remaking a Lost Harmony, contemporary fiction from the Hispanic Caribbean. These collections were published between 1991 and 1995, which made an enormous impact on the contours of a new direction of Caribbean literary scholarship. Professor Patavicini Gibert has also reshaped the fields in her recovery work of the Dominican author Phyllis Shan Alfrey, editing a critical edition of her foundational 1954 novel, The Orchid House, as well as a biography of the author and a newly released collection of Alfrey's uh, short stories. For over a decade, Professor Patavicini Gibert has been examining the contours of religious discourse in the region and its relationship to environmental knowledge. In addition to her co-edited collections, Sacred Possessions, Voodoo, Santeria, Obia, and the Caribbean, that was 1997. Healing Cultures, Art and Religion, is Curative Practices in the Caribbean Deforestation, from early uh, colonial travel narratives to contemporary poetry of the region, and the Discourse of Endangered Species and its relationship to the nation. So in addition to working on five books simultaneously, <laughs> including a two-volume biography of Jose Marti, and apparently that only counts as one book, um, and one on Caribbean eco-criticism. Um, she is also writing two novels and writing daily updates on her amazing blog of Caribbean culture, which you can find at repeatingislands.com. So today she's taking a quick writing break to join us to talk to us about of Creole pigs and other vanishing species, the environmental costs of colonialism in the Caribbean. Please join me in welcoming Professor Lisa panzini Hubert. <laughs> You are going to become an endangered species after mentioning my novel. This is what happens when you have a couple of uh, glasses of uh, wine and go into confession mode. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, thank you all for for being here today, and uh, and thank you, Liz, for uh, inviting me, and you guys for co-sponsoring. I'm very happy to be uh, to be here. So I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about the cheerful topic of extinction. Uh, so um, on June 6, 2008, the United States government announced that the Caribbean monk seal, also known as the West Indian seal, the only subtropical seal native to the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico was officially extinct. The last recorded sighting of this gentle creature, which once lived in large communities of between 50 and 100, on beaches throughout the Caribbean was in 1952, when it was spotted at Sevanilla Bank between Jamaica and the Yucatan Peninsula. So last June, after five years of futile efforts to find or confirm sightings, it finally joined the list of the growing victims of ecological changes unleashed by colonialism in the Caribbean region. It has gone the way of the dodo and has become in the process the only seal in history to vanish due to human causes. Its disappearance caused a minor ripple through the conservationist world, and the seal has become a bit of a celebrity in conservationist websites. You know, it's just a lot written uh, about it. 
I take the disappearance of our native, only native species of seal as my point of departure in this meditation of the millions of extinction for a post-colonial Caribbean because of the seal's cameo role on one of our earliest texts about the conquest and colonization of the Caribbean region. The seal enters recorded history in Christopher Columbus's diary of his fourth voyage uh, to the newly discovered territories as he orders the slaughter of eight of what he calls sea wolves to feed his crew. So begins the relentless slaughter of the mellow and slow-moving creatures which had his peak approached a hundred deaths per night. The killing of the eight seals by Columbus's men represents one of the earliest indications of how quickly the Colombian encounter would evolve into an ecological revolution, a concept that Eleanor Melville describes in her book about the environmental consequences of the conquest of Mexico the plague of sheep, as, I quote, an abrupt and qualitative break with the process of environmental and social change that had developed in situ. This ecological revolution can be measured in terms of biodiversity losses that have led to the disappearance of countless species in the region. I wanted to show you a quote here. It's our seal. Uh, Um, and I have a few others. Um, uh, the numbers are in the hundreds, uh, but let me name just a few. Uh, nine species of Antillian iguanas and snakes became extinct after Europeans introduced mongoose and rats uh, to protect sugar cane workers. Deforestation to clear the land for sugar plantations led to the loss of a variety of unusual native rodents like the utias and shrew-like in, uh, insectivores, many of them ancient species that have are now not been seen for several centuries. 50 mammals have become extinct in Hispaniola, the, higher, the highest number of mammal extinctions of any Caribbean islands, due to the severe deforestation of Haiti for the most part. Jamaica was, believe it or not, home to a monkey. The Xenotrix McGregory, I love the name, lost when its forest habitat was caught by European colonists. It died out in the 1750s. The uh, Cuban red maca, which I really like, um, um, was reasonably common around 1800 in, in Cuba, uh, but during the early 19th century when Cuba intensified its sugar production to meet the demand created by the Haitian Revolution, the human population encroaching on its habitat increased dramatically, leading to widespread deforestation. The bird was hunted down for food, nests were plundered or disturbed to acquire young birds to keep as pets, and the last one is believed to have been shot in 1864 um, at La Vega in the vicinity of La Cienega, Cienega de Zapata swamp, which seems to have been the last stronghold of the species. The Martinican Amazon, Parrot became extinct due to habitat loss as the island was cleared for agriculture. It has not been seen since 1722. And Perlava, in, let me see it. There it is. And uh, Perlava, in his memoir of his voyage to the Caribbean, described the population of small parrots living in Guadalupe named Arantiga Labati after the Bombivan priest of which no specimens have been recorded since the mid 18th century. Okay. 
what does it matter, you may ask, that until efforts were made recently to, to reintroduce parrots to Martinique, there were no endemic species left on the island. How much should we grieve for the Cuban red macro? Should we mourn the Caribbean monk seal? There is something inexorably final about the notion of extinction, about the disappearance brought about by natural or natural means of an entire species. And with hundreds of Caribbean species in the severely threatened endangered list, this is of course a global concern. As Julia Whitty wrote for Mother Jones last April, and I quote, a poll by the American Museum of Natural History finds that seven in 10 biologists believe that mass extinction poses a colossal threat to human existence, a more serious environmental problem than even its contributor, global warming, and that the dangers of mass extinction are woefully underestimated by most everyone outside of science. Now, these Caribbean extinctions pose a larger number of quest a large number of questions, biological, environmental, cultural. So I want this afternoon to look briefly at one of these questions, that of the ways in which these biological losses have impacted the ways in which the Caribbean region has been imagined and reimagined textually, and, and at how these imaginings force us to reconsider what it means to be post-colonial in a new century in which Caribbean writers have begun to ponder the extinction of Caribbean islands and peoples as the uh, ultimate result of global warming, continued deforestation, galloping desertification, and rising sea levels. There are uh, the governments of the, of the Caribbean have begun to measure the national territories almost obsessively, uh, recording how, how many acres um, per year the, the islands are losing. So in these very small islands, you can begin to see the anxieties about, about space. Um, Derek Walcott, for example, ponders the question of whether the destruction of the Caribbean landscapes could signal the loss of the people who inhabit them. And these are new questions when, when writers are beginning to question the ultimate survivability of Caribbean peoples. Uh, so he, he's thinking of the end of island nations and their people peoples in his essay, Antilles, Fragments of Epic Memory. And uh, let me quote you this, this paragraph, which really encapsulates what his concerns are. He writes, the Caribbean is not a tourist idol, not to its natives. They draw their working strength from it organically, like trees, like the sea almond or the spice laurel of the heights. Its peasantry and its fishermen are not there to be loved or even photographed. They are trees who sweat, and whose bark is filled with salt, with, um, but every day on some island, rootless trees, trees in suits are signing favorable tax breaks with entrepreneurs, poisoning the sea almond and the spice laurel of the mountains to their roots. A morning could come in which governments might ask what happened not merely to the forest and the bays, but to a whole people. Now, the concern for the impact of ecological loss in writings about the Caribbean could be found in some of the earliest literary and proto-literary texts written about the region. Afro Ben, uh, Afro in her novel Orunoco, published in 1688, already pondered what the increasingly intense clearing of the Caribbean forest would mean for the indigenous peoples and animals who have been relegated to the diminishing woods. Ben's sojourn in Suriname in 1653 coincided with what has been called the Great Clearing, 
This is a period between 1650 and 1665 that was marked by devastating deforestation throughout the British and French Caribbean. Uh, it resulted in significant soil erosion and in the scarcity and high price of timber for construction and fuel wood, particularly for refining sugar. Uh, this is a, a process that uh, Richard Grove uh, picks, picks up in his book, uh, Green Imperialism, at, at least as far as St. Vincent is, uh, is concerned. Um, the geography of Ben's novel, which reflects the history of the development of the plantation economy in British-held territories in the first half of the 17th century, is built on the social and economic separation between the clear land of the sugar plantation to which the narrator belongs as an Englishwoman and the dense woods that are the domain of the indigenous inhabitants. You know, the, the, the novel clearly marks um, these separate geographies, uh, both social and economic. Uh, the, these indigenous forest dwellers, as Ben narrator explains, and I quote, supply us with what is impossible for us to get, for they do not, for they do not only in the woods and over the savannas in hunting, supply the parts of hounds by swiftly scouring through all, almost uh, all impassable places and by the mere activity of their feet run down the nimblest deer and other eatable beasts. Ben's text identifies the forest as an endangered liminal terrain, a psychological as well as a physical divide that the indigenous people navigate easily, which represents a fragile barrier to continued colonial expansion. Where the natives will go if the clearing of the forest continues is a question that the novel implies, but it, uh, it finds impossible to, to answer. Ben's Creole contemporary, Cuban writer Jose, Mar uh, Jose Martin Felix de Agnate y Acosta, celebrates the island's biodiversity while recording one of the earliest acknowledgments of creeping extinctions. In his Llave de Nuevo Mundo, Key to the New World, published in 1666, he offers an implicit Creole-led project for the conservation of Cuba's remarkable biodiversity against the forces of the Spanish Empire, which, as the 18th century opens, seeks to move uh, towards a monocrop system following the successful example of the French and British Caribbean colonies. So here is Cuba at the beginning of the um, 18th century trying to prepare itself to, to uh, uh, go forth and cultivate sugar. Cuba's mountains, Arrate writes, and I quote, abound with rich and wild fruit, precious woods, cedar, mahogany, passion fruit trees, guayacos, lignombita, and other broad and valuable trees. The focus of his study read by officials in Spain is to underscore the difference, diversity, and implied self-sufficiency and sustainability of the island as an environmental system, which he keeps underscoring is different from that of Spain. His text is both a description and a boast, as a Creole, a boast of an enviable abundance that is the foundation for a proto-national identification, of an expression of an incipient Cubania that will begin the separation of which 20th century uh, Cuban anthropologist Fernando Ortiz will write in Cuban Counterpoint between producers of sugar living in the deforest deforested plains and those able to plant and profit, yet still conserve and live on the edge of the abundance and protection of the forest, planting uh, cacao, coffee, and tobacco. 
Agriate, in his efforts to emphasize this difference, writes of, and I quote, the beautiful variety of flowering trees in the countryside, of fragrant herbs and plants, of the abundance of singing birds, he names nightingales, mockingbirds, mannequins, bellbirds, and cotinias, um, of game birds like ringdoes, quail, partridges, of the diversity of ducks in rivers and lagoons, and of the birds of flashy and varied feathers, as he called them, such as the flamenco, tanagers, parrots, and parakeets. We know that the, one of them was already on the verge of extinction. He establishes a clear distinction between these lands of natural abundance and what he calls tierras de labor, literally lands of labor or plantations that require labor force that produce besides tobacco and sweet cane, which are the most useful crops, a profusion of manioc, sweet potatoes, ginger, corn, rice, cocoa, and coffee. In his narrative, Arrate implies the existence of three distinct groups in Cuban society, and this is 1666. But by then, he's identifying three distinct groups, all of them, each one of them with a different relationship to the environment. Um, one, the Spaniards who had brought irreversible changes to the landscapes in the form of new crops and animals. He records every, uh, every uh, new species they have brought in and their impact on the local environment. And I quote one of his lines, he says, before the Spaniards populated the island, there were no more quadrupeds in certain utillas and certain types of mute dogs, which are now extinct. Uh, so the other group he identifies is the Isleños or Islanders, his name for the indigenous, whom he sees as belonging to the landscape in a specifically authentic way as they live, live off the bounty of the forest and seas. And then a third group is those like him, native born or not indigenous, inextricably connected to a new definition of the landscape, seeking to profit from that landscape, but without, unlike the Spaniards, and without altering it inexorably. So at the dawn of the 18th century, Per Lava, uh, in his extensive report of his visit to the Caribbean, written at a time of fast plantation development in Martinique and Guadeloupe, writes of his concerns with the loss of biodiversity in Guadalupe, he had encountered the Diablotin. He was totally fascinated with this Diablotin. I couldn't get you a picture because there doesn't seem to be any left. Uh, photos, or, well, there were never any photos of the Diablotin, but drawings of the Diablotin seem to be extinct. Uh, so in Guadalupe, he had encountered the Diablotin, an ungainly bird the size of a pullet that lived in a hole in the mountains like rabbits. It describes their flesh as dark, with a rather fishy flavor, but good and nourishing. And uh, let me quote uh, this paragraph. He writes, these birds are a veritable mana sent by God every year for the settlers and neighbors who live on little else during the season. It is only the difficulty of getting them which preserves the species. And these birds would be killed out completely in a few years owing to the bad custom of the French were it not for the fact that they choose the most inaccessible places for their homes. So here you have Perlava already calculating the potential lifespan of species, and this is not the only one. It's the, the most interesting one, only because it ties up to something else. <laughs> I, mean, I could have chosen any others, but uh, this one ties better with my next example. So 
Frederick Over, I don't know if, there's, if anybody here has read the works of Frederick Over. He's an American traveler have, who wrote pretty extensively on the, on the Caribbean. He's, he's quite sharp and very interesting. Um, and he says, what, so look, what he does, Frederick, is that he goes to the Caribbean armed with a copy of Pearl Lamott's uh, work and goes, you know, sort of following him, searching for the Diablo tongue. Um, so um, he, he, he discusses in his book, A West Indian Neighbors. And I, I want you to, uh, to read uh, what he has to say about his search. So my first hunt for the bird was in the island of Dominica, which has a mountain about 5,000 feet in height. But I did not find it because, as I was told, it had been exterminated by the, by the Manacu, um, a native possum which has sought it out in its holes and devoured its eggs. Uh, this possum, however, was not native but introduced. Neither was I successful in Guadeloupe. The bird I never saw, or at least never knew it if I saw it, was the impelling motive for many a hard climb of the steep slides of those Caribbean volcanoes. And in my search, I ascended them all. I mean, there's something quite funny about this guy climbing volcanoes because Pere Laval said that they live in crevices uh, near, near uh, the craters of volcanoes. Um, I passed the night one time um, on the brim of St. Eustatius' perfect crater cone for the sole purpose of observing the nocturnal sounds and, if possible, scenes as I lay wrapped in my blanket with the fierce winds whistling around me. I thought I heard the voice of the little devil in the air above me and anxiously peer in the darkness. But no conservation is Frederick, he says, gone a poise. But so he's, like, he's there. Now he's worried about this, but he has his rifle ready to shoot one down if he sees the, like, go Fred. But no form of bird rewarded my vision. And in the morning, I returned empty-handed to the coast. I could offer you dozens of other examples. I mean, I really could. I could just go forever telling you examples, but I won't. Um, because we don't have until midnight. I uh, said so I could be offer you dozens of other examples of how the threat to biodiversity in the region is chronicled in writings about the Caribbean. It offers a rich vein for further exploration, if anybody is into digging through books looking for extinct species described. But I think this will suffice to make my point about the many explorations of the significance of habitat encroachment on threatened species in texts in and about the region. So I want to just make the point, uh, or since it points to a thematic continuity between these earlier writers and contemporary works that return to the endangerment of the fauna and the peoples of the Caribbean as a principal focus, such as Patrick Tramoiseau's Bibliothèque de Niégesse or Jamaica Quinquette, A Small Place. So if, if you read uh, A Small Place, which is a fairly popular book, it's hard to get through any Caribbean course. Uh, nowadays without reading a small place. Uh, you may recall that Jamaica Kincaid bemoans how a big new hotel um, with its own port of entry has been built on a bay that used to have the best wilks in the world. But where did they all go? So you know, the, the, this development, all of these developments is encroaching on habitat. And there are uh, many people asking, well, there were the best things here, the best things there, but where did they all go? Of this more recent text, I want to look at two examples uh, very quickly of 
how they approach issues of extinction. One is P.S. Naipaul's The Loss of El Dorado, the other Maida Montero's In the Power of Darkness, before moving on to the Creole picks of my title, because of course we were waiting for the picks. Right? Uh, but the, uh, so in an essay entitled B.S. Naipaul and the Interior Expeditions, or is, it is impossible to make a step without the Indians, Sandra Pouchet Paquette argues, and I quote, that in respect to the way he shapes the history and character of indigenous peoples over a span of some 39 years, Naipaul moves away from the traditional imperial models of cross-cultural exploration he identifies in the travels of, travel narratives of Huxley, D.H. Lawrence, uh, and others through a more rigorous imaginative inquiry into history to something approaching what Wilson Harris might describe as an art of compassion that unravels the block formations of a colonial relationship. Now, I know that this is a stretch that to think of Naipaul, especially in view of the <laughs> uh, Patrick French's uh, new biography as exercising anything related, uh, anything remotely uh, considered an art of compassion is, is a stretch, but uh, I, I think she has, she has a point. Uh, the, his study looks at various texts by Naipaul, uh, but I would like to focus on how he uses the disappearance shall we say, extinction of the Chaguanas Indians in the laws of El Dorado as a way of redefining the possibilities of post-coloniality, right? Um, and has anybody read the laws of El Dorado recently? It's the, it's the way he opens the, the narrative. Um, he, he opens with this narrative, and I will uh, uh, quote from a summary he makes of the story later. Uh, this is, it's a narrative that he returns again and again in his writings as this kind of seminal point. Uh, he says, and I quote, one day in the British Museum, I read a letter from the King of Spain to the governor of Trinidad. It was dated 12th October, 1625. I asked you, the king wrote, to give me some information about a certain nation of Indians called Chaguanas, who you say number above 1,000. This is in Trinidad and are of such bad disposition that it was they who led the English when they captured the town. Their crime hasn't been punished because forces were not available for this purpose and because the Indians acknowledged no masters save their own will. You have decided to give them a punishment. Follow the rules I have given you. Let me know how you get on. What the governor, uh, this is still uh, my post, Writing. What the governor did, I didn't. I don't. I don't know. I could find no further reference to the Shawanes in the documents in the museums. Perhaps there were other documents about the Shawanes in the mountains of papers in the Spanish archives in Seville, which the British government, government scholars missed or didn't think important enough to copy out. There seemed to be no such other documents. What is true is that the little tribe of over a thousand, who would have been living on both sides of the Gulf of Paria disappears so completely that no one in the town of Chaguanas or Chahong knew anything about them. And the thought came to me in the museum that I was the first person since 1625 to whom that letter of the King of Spain had a real meaning. And that letter had been dug out of the archives only in 1896 or 1897. It disappears. And then the silence of centuries. In his novel prize acceptance speech, Michael he goes, he, he, 
he loves this story. He uses it in the first pages of the Los of El Dorado, and then it appears in at least seven other essays or books. Uh, and it is a, a, a central point in his Nobel Prize uh, uh, speech. So in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, Knight proposes to lament the erasure of the Chaguanes from the annals of Trinidad's history and the consciousness of those who succeeded them in that landscape over time, Knight quote. People who had been dispossessed would have had their own kind of agriculture, their own calendar, their own codes, their own sacred sites. They would have understood the Orinoco fed currents of the Gulf of Paria. Now all their skills and everything else about them had been obliterated. I find this concern with erasure. Later in his, in his speech, he will use the word extinction. Uh, of great interest to my focus on how writers in the Caribbean imagine postcoloniality in an environmentally endangered world. Uh, postcolonial theory, for example, which has been our guiding theory through, through most of the uh, recovery and exploration of our Caribbean culture, history, um, past and, and, and present. Um, Postcolonial theory is, by definition, an optimistic approach to the problems posited uh, by Caribbean history. It assumes uh, recovery from an affliction of sorts. We were colonial, now we will be post-colonial. Um, it has uh, the vocabulary of empowerment that it brings to cultural analysis in the, in the region. Uh, in a post-colonial state, under certain circumstances, given certain conditions, if some actions are taken, we can transcend the negative impact of colonialism. We can redefine our identities, reframe our institutions, empower our people, liberate our women, etc. The language of extinction, on the other hand, presents obstacles to this kind of post-colonial thinking. As the silence of absence, as in the disappearance of the Chaguanes, represents a foundational void, which Naipaul fully recognizes when he writes thus. Um, and this is uh, another indigenous story he tells us. He says, he writes, there was a vague story when I was a child, and to me now it is an unbearably affecting story. I can, I can no longer read, I've, I read French, and I can no longer read Naipaul without raising an eyebrow and going like, getting sentimental, did you? Um, it's a horrible, I mean, it's a great book about a horrible subject. Um, <laughs> there was a vague story when I was a child, and to me now it is an unbearably affecting story, he says, that at certain times Aboriginal people came across in canoes from the mainland, walked through the forest in the south of the island, and at a certain spot, picked pick some kind of fruit or made some kind of offering and then went back across the Gulf of Paria to the southern estuary of the Orinoco. The rivals have been of enormous importance to survive the upheavals of 400 years and the extinction of the Aborigines in Trinidad. Or perhaps, uh, though Trinidad and Venezuela have a common flora, they have come only to pick a particular kind of fruit. You know, something's only available in Trinidad. I don't know, he writes. I can't remember anyone inquiring. And now the memory is all lost. And that sacred site, if it existed, has become common ground. Um, I want to offer another example, since it's well known that Naipaul, he of the nothing was built in the West Indies reputation, is not the most optimistic of writers on Caribbean history. Uh, uh, my, so I want to talk a little bit about Mayra Monteros in The Pound of Darkness. 
because this is an avowedly environmentalist novel. Is everybody ready? Um, actually, it's the first uh, avowedly environmentalist novel written in the in the Caribbean. It narrates the tale of an American herpetologist named Victor Brick, who, with the aid of his Haitian guide, a devout um, practitioner of voodoo, uh, is on a quest for an elusive and threatened blood frog, extinct everywhere but on the dangerous Erie Mountains near Port-au-Prince and uh, later across the, the bay. So there are two spots where they search. So in the volatile and bloody setting of the Haitian mountains, controlled in the novel by violent thoughts, Moreno, uh, Montero uncovers a haunted post-colonial space built upon the interstices between the scientific uh, perspective of this scientist and uh, his guy's animistic uh, Vodou-inspired worldview. Uh, so Montero uses this dichotomy to, to explore how the extinction of species is the direct outcome of, of an environmental collapse as the forest that where the frogs ha uh, habitat disappeared. She shows concomitantly how the troubled landscape of Haiti and the very environment on which the Haitian people depend for survival. See, I'm heading for this case. Uh, uh, people with zombies and other frightening otherworldly creatures who have escaped the control of uh, Ungans has decayed precipitously due to political corruption, violence, institutional terror, murder, brutality, and religious turmoil. In the Caribbean imaginary, Haiti has become the despoiled terrain that stands as, the, as a warning of the direst consequences that could face Caribbean nations that do not make a concerted effort to put a stop to environmental degradation. It, I mean, you can find this everywhere. The reports from governments, I was uh, reading not long ago a, a report on, um, uh, on the environment in Dominica, and there was the expected line, if we don't do this, we will become like Haiti. Uh, the, uh, it is the, the warning uh, signal. Um, in spaces as small as uh, many Caribbean island nations, Dominica, for example, is 30 miles long and 50 miles wide. There are neighborhoods in LA that are bigger than that. Um, the ecological balance is fragile and the level of vulnerability extremely high. As a result, the viability of the nation itself and the survival of its people are marked by an urgency unimaginable in continental settings. Uh, see, think, for example, of Montserrat, uh, which following uh, the, the eruption of its volcano found half of its population literally adrift. Uh, they had become environmental refugees. Uh, and uh, have many of them, most of them, had never been able to return to uh, return to, to Montserrat. Uh, they were they found themselves temporarily in limbo until the, until Great Britain actually had to uh, give them uh, citizenship. So if you can imagine the loss of a of a nation, the the setting adrift of uh, of uh, half of a nation's uh, people into in you know into uh, out there to see who would, uh, you know, give them a space. Uh, this, this is a, a, uh, to us. It may, it may seem like how can people think that they're going to lose their nation or become refugees? But uh, I don't, you know, the uh, just uh, days after the, the last election in the Maldives, what you know, I don't know if you uh, 
read in the news what the new government promised, that they were going to use the profits from their highly profitable tourist ventures to buy land in, uh, in other nations so that their people of the Maldives would not become environmental refugees. That they would have. So this is a very, uh, it might seem uh, from this writer's highly imaginative, but it is really a, a deep concern of peoples in the actually island dwellers just uh, all around the world. Um, so as a result of this vulnerability, the viability of the, the nation itself and the survival of uh, its people are marked by an urgency, as I said, unimaginable in continental settings. So nowhere in the Caribbean is this revealed more heartrendingly than in Haiti. The devastation brought upon the Haitian landscape by continued deforestation, desertification, failed tourist development, and the collapse of agribusiness amidst governmental corruption uh, has become the country's most glaring socioeconomic and political problem. Haiti's forests, already depleted from lumber to be sold in the international market in the 20th century, have in recent years been cut down in catastrophic numbers for the charcoal use everywhere in cooking. So as Haiti entered the 21st century, the country's extreme deforestation and the concomitant soil erosion, droughts, and disastrous flash floods have ravaged the countryside every hurricane season, and the last one was perhaps the most devastating. Uh, today have le has left the country in the very edge of environmental despair. So with only 1% of the land covered in forests, previous fertile fields are now desert-like. Most of the topsoil has been washed to sea, where it has contributed to the destruction of breeding and habitats for marine life. Uh, so that the fishing around Haiti is now practically non-existent. Uh, it is a situation exacerbated by uh, uh, by the, uh, the, the hurricane season and, and, and their impact. So the most frequent question prompted by Haiti's environmental crisis is whether something can still be done to help the land of Haiti regain its ability to sustain its people. You know, the question is usually, is Haiti still a viable nation? Uh, in collapse, uh, Jared Diamond describes Haiti's ecological quandary uh, in succinct terms, putting into question the, country, the country's continued possibility to sustain its nine million inhabitants. Um, and I'm not going to uh, read you that quote because everybody has, everybody seems to be reading Jared Diamond. Uh, my issues with him, but uh, um, the, it seems like he's the writing du jour. Uh, at the root of these troubles is an unimaginable ecological catastrophe that speaks eloquently to writers across the Caribbean. Haiti's symbolic position as the region's first republic and as a land whose history has been emblematic uh, of the economic and political vicissitudes that have plagued other islands in the area gives the embattled nation a central position in Caribbean environmental discourse. Uh, its ecological conundrum in the hands of writers like Montero becomes a focal point for meditations on the, re on the general region's environmental options. So in the palm of darkness, Montero poses the possibility of the extinction, not only of the frogs whose last specimen dies in the final pages of the novel, uh, but of the nation and its people. And I wanted to read you this paragraph where she talks about this. Uh, and this is uh, in the voice of the Haitian guide. He says, you want to know where the frogs go? 
I cannot say, sir, but let me ask you a question. Where did our fish go? Almost all of them left the sea, and in the forest, the wild pigs disappeared. First, the pigs, uh, and the migratory ducks, and even the iguanas for eating, they went too. Just take a look at what's left for humans. Just take a careful look. You can see the bones pushing out under our skins as if they wanted to escape, to leave behind that weak flesh where they are so battered to go into hiding someplace else. At times I think, but I but keep it to myself, I think that one day a man like you will come here. Somebody uh, who crosses the oceans to look for a couple of frogs. And when I say frogs, I mean any creature. And he will find only a great hill of bones on the shore. A hill higher than the peak of Ted Roof. Then he will say to himself, Haiti is finished. God Almighty, those all bones are all that remains. Mm -hmm. Montero's assessment of Haiti's quandary points to colonialism as an irreversible ill, as a force that once unleashed into the region becomes like a dormant infection, ready to strike at any instance of a weak immune system. It poses a different concern with postcoloniality, one that runs counter to the possibilities of recover at the heart of post-colonial theories. One could argue that these are all fictional assessments. I mean, Montero's just a novel. Uh, if, it, uh, uh, if it were for cases like that of the Creole pig in Haiti, which points to the continued impact of colonialism in the form of continued neo-colonial oppression. I want, I'm going to, uh, instead of telling you the story of the Haitian Creole pig, I am going to let uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide tell it to you, and this is how he summarized what happened to the Creole pigs. The history of the eradication of the Haitian Creole pig population in the 1980s is a classic parable of globalization, writes Aristide. Haiti's small black Creole pigs were at the heart of the peasant economy. Um, an extremely hardy breed, well adapted to Haiti's climate and conditions, they ate readily available waste products and could survive for three days without food. 80 to 85% of rural households raised pigs. They played a key role in maintaining the fertility of the soil and constituted the primary savings banks of the peasant population. Traditionally, a pig was sold to pay for emergencies and special occasions, funerals, marriages, baptisms, illnesses, and critically, to pay school fees and buy books for the children when school opened at each year in October. In 1982, international agencies, or international agencies, read, yes, um, assured Haiti's peasants that pigs were sick and had to be killed, so that illness could not spread to the countries of the north. Promises were made that better pigs would replay the sick pigs, and with efficiency not seen since among development projects, ironically writes Aristide, all of the Creole pigs were killed over a period of 13 months. So, in a little over a year, the Creole pig was extinct. The way of the dodo of the Caribbean monk seal. Uh, so the eradication of the Creole pig was a moment of neo-colonial trauma for Haiti as a nation. Uh, the pigs, although not indigenous to the, to the island, 
had, had evolved in a symbiotic relationship to their terrain from the ones dropped by Columbus on the island to, to feed Spanish colonizers. They had adapted well to the, they had adapted well to the, the rugged terrain and sparse vegetation of Haiti. The, its resilience allowed Haitian peasants to raise their pigs with little resources. And as Aristide um, writes, they serve as a piggy bank. No pun intended. Um, uh, so in the Haitian peasant community, uh, the governments, that, well, not the governments, but the, uh, the uh, eradication imposed from literally above, uh, and repopulation was highly uh, criticized. They replaced them with pigs from Iowa. Like, um, the, um, and the peasants protested that they were not fairly compensated for the pigs, and that the pigs, a breed of breeder pigs imported from the United States, uh, which they quickly uh, christened Le France au Quatre Pieds, the Four Legged Princes, uh, or the White Pigs, um, <laughs> needed special feed that cost $90 uh, a year in Haiti, needed vaccinations. Give me a break. Uh, needed roofed pig pens and clean water. <laughs> um, so they they concluded that they were unsuitable for the current Haitian environment and economy and not sustainable. Um, so not as hardy as the Creole pig, they need expensive feed and special cages out of the sun. And as one uh, Haitian told John Dayan. Um, the noted Caribbeanists, quote, they have soft stomachs, delicate feet, feet and thin skin. This is uh, Aristide's assessment, and this is how, what he concluded uh, in another piece of writing. So two years later, and I quote from him, two years later, the new better pigs came from Iowa. They were so much better that they required clean drinking water when available to 80% of the Haitian population. Imported feed costing $90 a year when the per capita income was about 130 Special roof pig pens. Haitian peasants quickly built them, as I tell you, told you before, Le Ponce or Quatre Pieds. Uh, and adding insult to injury, the meat did not taste as good. Uh, so observers have uh, concluded that in, you know, if you adjust for conditions in Haiti, the cost to Haitian peasants of this operation of eradication has been in the neighborhood of $600 million. Uh, and there was a 30, as a result of this eradication uh, project, there was a 30% drop in enrollment in rural schools, uh, a dramatic decline in the consumption of protein throughout Haiti, and the concomitant development of uh, uh, disease, a devastating capitalization of the peasant economy, as an incalculable negative impact on Haitian soil and, and agricultural productivity. The peasant, the Haitian peasantry has not recovered to this day, and we're talking about 25 years later. Uh, so now there's a, a uh, you know, French agronomist, French and Haitian agronomists have been working now for, for years on a, uh, breeding a new variety of pig uh, with the same beneficial qualities as Haiti's Creole pig, and there's an effort on the way to repopulate Haiti with these pigs. Uh, 
Now, uh, but our, our pigs, the original pigs are, are gone. What, so what I, what I ask myself is what is the importance of the extinction of the Creole pig other than, than what he's, you know, the, the monetary uh, uh, and physical impact. Uh, it is one in a long line of past and future extinctions, which like the demise of frogs worldwide and the puzzling disappearance of pollinating bees, uh, uh, signal that, the, that, that all is not environmentally uh, well with the world. In the case of the Haitian Creole pig, however, a planned and efficiently managed eradication, we see the transparency of colonial presupposition still at work. The possibility of infection coming out of the Caribbean region may have seemed an intolerable risk to a larger and stronger economy, such as that of the United States. Uh, the potential, uh, potential for infection represented by the pigs, coincidentally, came at a time when Americans feared that the AIDS epidemic had its origin in Haiti. And the two things, to me, cannot be separated uh, one from the other. These were the times when AIDS was believed to be caused by the 4A 